generation dwells here. And then we moving by the pack, so we moving them. And even if you don't, then you do, cause you cool with them. They be like, I only went to school with them. So welcome to Color Correction, a Jesus-y podcast about race from the perspective of a black guy, an Asian guy, and a white guy too. I'm Andrew, he, him pronouns, I'm Asian. And I'm Bethany, I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a black woman. And we have a special guest this week. (laughs) So our friend Chris is out because he's sick, so uh, we're wishing him to feel better. But another one of our team members, um, Bryant from Circle Mobilizing Because Black Lives Matter. We've talked about that team before. That's why uh, Chris, Andrew, and I are friends. Um, And Bryant is on the team as well. And he is our uh, replacement white guy. So congratulations uh, that well, we chose well, you. Thank yeah. You. Well, he, and he's not just a replacement white guy. He's also our <laughs> friend and a member of our faith community and a seminarian at Claremont College. Yeah. Right. That is Claremont a school. Claremont School of Theology. God damn it. <laughs> he's also uh, Claremont School of Theology, named after the acclaimed writer of X-Men. <laughs> what? <laughs> Never mind. Uh, nerd joke. Um <laughs> Why don't we start by talking about going over any corrections that we have from last week. I was um, listening to our previous episode, which hasn't been released yet, and I think I say that President Trump is 77. I think he's actually 73. 73 or 74. Did I get it wrong again? And I think Biden is 76 and Bernie Sanders is 148. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So Donald Trump is 73 years old right now. He's not 77, he's 73. So after I listened to um, my story about the backpack, which I still find kind of comical, I realized that I was problematic in ways that I felt uncomfortable with. Um, Mm. And one of those ways was um, calling the guy that stole my backpack crazy. Mm -hmm. And I didn't explicitly say, oh, I didn't say, oh, he's crazy, or maybe I'm trying to make it better even right now. Um, But I remember at one point I thought, I said, oh, yeah, I just thought the guy was crazy. And that language is really dehumanizing, and it made me uncomfortable when I heard it, because I think it really matters what we say about people when they're not around. Like, that's the thing that actually matters. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I'm working on, um, and then uh, in the wake of a Tatiana Jefferson Yes. Even after listening to the episode, I realized that I had other options than calling the police. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't think of another of another option because um, calling nine one one has been so ingrained in us since childhood. That's one of the first numbers that your parents teach you um, yeah. to call. And in the wake of a Tatiana Jefferson's death, um, she's a black woman in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, who was up late playing video games with her nephew. A neighbor noticed that her door was ajar and called the police for a welfare check. Um, And her welfare check turned into her death. Um, The police came and uh, saw her through the window and within four seconds shot and killed her. Mm -hmm. Um, And that story coming out last week really convicted me even more. I had already Mm -hmm. been thinking, yeah, I wish I hadn't called the police. Um, and hearing of her death made me um, further feel like solidified in those feelings. Yeah. When you originally told that story, the fact that you had called the police stood out to me, which is why I wanted to have that phone call and kind of dive into your thought process a little more. Yeah. Because that, 
I mean, we've talked in the past about how calling the police is kind of a fraught thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember way back when Chris was telling us about an incident at the Baby Goods Exchange and somebody, and called, somebody the called the police? Yeah. yeah, and we were both like, "That's a bad idea." Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, I, I was surprised that you had thought to call the police when you were in a situation. Yeah, I. Again, I think I need to train myself to think of better options because I was frazzled trying to find the keys. I was frazzled because this little girl broke down crying in front of me. Mm-hmm. I was frazzled because I was trying to grab my ba- trying to get my backpack mm-hmm. back. And the only thing I could think of was I, j- I just have to call the police. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried to make it better on the phone and say, like, it seems like this guy is having a mental health crisis and we need help. But, um, yeah, a Tatiana Jones I don't think she taught me. I think she reminded me Mm -hmm. um, that even with all of those um, disclosures, black people can be dead when the police are called. So for that reason, I'm sorry to our listeners that I made that decision. And I'm also going to help try to help you guys make other decisions. Um, So if you're in Philly, there's a 24 hour mental health delegate line. And that number is 215-685-685. 6440. Um, and I'm going to try and remember that number like I do 911. Um, and I'm going to encourage everybody else to do the same. Right on. Cool. So we were going to use that story to springboard into our main topic because the fact that you did call the police is not that exceptional. We're, right. 911 is drilled into our heads from the beginning. And we are also taught in school that police are our friends and Stuff like that. I think it's interesting that we're living in an age where fewer and fewer people trust the police as an institution, Mm -hmm. but also fewer and fewer people trust institutions at all. Mm -hmm. Um, There is – I mean there's a joke that millennials are are killing everything, right? We are all, I guess, millennials. If Chris were here, he'd be Gen X, which is why he's not here, which is why (laughs) Brian's here. Millennial only podcast. Yeah, gang, gang. (laughs) And you know what? When I see these articles, on one hand, I'm like, you can't can't put everybody in a box, which is a millennial thing to think. Right. But at the same time, it's like, you know what? I can see the fact that in general, people under 40 don't trust institutions because I see that impulse in myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally. I'm curious about exploring where that distrust comes from in our personal lives and also how we see it systemically around us. Mm -hmm. I can say that for myself, I had to, in growing up in the evangelical church, really reform a lot of the ways that I thought about faith. Mm -hmm. And also, since that was tied so closely with my politics when I was growing up, I also had to rethink my politics. And that kind of... The trauma of forcing myself out of those kind of very comfortable places that I had been raised in and my parents had raised me in, I think did imbue me with a certain kind of distrust of institutions where to this day, my impulse is still to distrust like groups of people telling me what to do. Mm -hmm. Can you guys relate to that impulse? I love being told what to do. I have to actively like challenge Uh that, Mm. challenge myself into challenging that. But I think... As I've gotten older, and I feel like we live in the matrix, specifically people of color, right? Okay. Like, there's this world mm-hmm. that, like, white people live in that is, what, the blue pill or whatever? I can't remember the movie. Yeah, that's um, right. But 
the older I've gotten and the longer that I've lived in Philadelphia and have gotten to see how like institutionalized racism, oppression, incarceration, and all of those things create a totally different world Mm -hmm. for um, other people that look like me but may not come from the same like um, income bracket as me has Mm -hmm. really made me have to challenge myself and my thinking of what Mm -hmm. is actually normal or what is actually reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A few weeks ago when we were at The Hub, Guy was telling us about that. Um, You guys were talking about an article in the Tribune, which was talking about how black people need to step up in terms of voter participation. Yes. Was that the gist of it? Yep. And Guy was kind of agreeing with the article, and you were kind of, you were not agreeing with the article. Whatsoever. Yeah. The gist of his article was that I think only like a few thousand people voted um, in the judge's race in uh, Philadelphia in May or June or something Mm -hmm. like that. And the gist of his article was that, like, black people have to do better. And I think white supremacy consistently makes us harder on black people as opposed to recognizing the systems of white supremacy Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. that prohibit us from being able to do certain things. So voting is something that happens from, what, 8 a.m. to... 8 p.m., I think? Yep. 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. So let's talk about whether or not you you might have kids, right? And you're the only one working. Do you Is it really worth finding and paying a babysitter to go vote super early? Mm-hmm. Or do you have to take your kids to school super early and maybe you work a late shift? Do you think another part of that discussion was even thinking about, I mean, at least in our conversation with Guy, part of what we were talking about was... Why even vote? Why even vote? Right? Mm-hmm. Like... We saw that it didn't work for Al Gore in 2000. Mm-hmm. We saw that it didn't work when we voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Mm-hmm. Even when we vote in progressives, they are tainted by the pressure of uh, more conservative political powers yeah. that make them they shift. They end up disappointing us. Yeah, they disappoint us every time. So why would we want to vote? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I get why black people don't vote. I, I vote like I buy lottery tickets every six months. Maybe I'll hit. Uh-huh. That's yeah. how I look at voting. I mean, and this is the heart of what we're talking about. So we've got this particular generation, which has a deep distrust of institutions and the system. And you've got another point of view, which believes that the system can be saved or reformed. That's kind of the tension that we're constantly dealing with in basically everything that we do Yeah. in organizing and in faith. I think the thing that I'm always thinking about is in following Jesus, am I called to reform the system or am I called to a completely different system mm-hmm. altogether? I mean, Bryant, you, um, you're you a seminarian. And also, you have an Anabaptist background, right? Oh, for sure. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, wow. Man, I'm, I'm like 300% Mennonite. So the Mennonites are a Christian sect that came out of the Reformation? Yeah, uh, Anabaptists would call it the Radical Reformation, Mm -hmm. this idea that there was a lot of these sects that popped up during that time, about 50 years after Luther, that said, Luther, Calvin, those groups didn't go far enough. Uh, We want complete separation of church and state, you know, radical pacifism. They had one instance where they overthrew, they took over an entire city and... That was and bad. bad stuff happened. Yeah, bad there were stuff people happened. in cages. Yeah, that was that was the, the one. Mennonites put people in cages. Not Mennonites, but Anabaptists. Anabaptist is kind of an umbrella term for this 
for this uh, bigger group of people that I would say includes like Mennonites, the Amish, mm-hmm. Quakers, mm-hmm. Um, all these people that want to uh, have all these chill motherfuckers had people in cages. Yeah, yeah, that was a bad, that was a bad scene. <laughs> it was a bad time. If you have time. an Amish person upset enough to put you in a cage, mm-hmm. some things are going down. But that's an interesting. I think it was called the Munster Rebellion. It's a very interesting time because it was. Uh, it was they took these ideas and they went even further and they said, "Hey, if we take over this city and if we take over the power structures, then we're in charge and we can create our own kingdom of heaven." So they created this society where everything was like super. Now we would use the word puritanical, but mm-hmm. it's this idea mm-hmm. of like you live by our way or you <laughs> go into a cage. So it's funny to hear that my, the tradition that I was born into, like all of comes my great, from such a revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny to hear that so much of like all of my great grandparents, I think, were Amish. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, that's amazing. That is, I mean, something. for people, it is weird that the Amish are probably the most visible and. Touristy Pure example, yeah, like unusual, yeah, of this particular sect, yeah. And, it, and, and yeah. I mean, we're recording in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, we're not that far away from Amish communities in Lancaster, but um, the Amish mm-hmm. uh, are part of the Anabaptist umbrella, yeah, totally. Where they have completely separated themselves from the world. You'd probably agree with me that the putting people in cages and taking over a city to create a radical kingdom of heaven is uh, kind of kind of an outlier in terms of Anabaptist history. Totally. Okay. I would say that because I like the tradition. Yeah. Um, and I'm the faith community that we're part of, Circle of Hope, is part of the Brethren of Christ, which is part of, which is an Anabaptist tradition. So yeah. in some weird sense, we're Mennonites. We're still doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess what we're saying is... Let me provide a counterpoint to that. Okay. Yeah. Because I think that's more interesting. Um I grew up in Lancaster around all these Amish people, and they're really—they're all really wonderful people. But mm-hmm. I see the problem of creating your own community is that you end up caring about your community and not caring about the world and what's happening around you. Mm. Sometimes it's hard though because the world is crazy. Yeah, yeah. I would love to create a new society that has nothing to do with Donald Trump right now. Yeah, me too. I get that, mm-hmm. but I'm also—I look at it. And I say, like, how many more <laughs> slaves could have been free in the Civil War if my ancestors had been part of the Underground Railroad? How many mm-hmm. more, like, uh, I don't know. It's complicated. Because but I feel like the Anabaptists were the first to have a... Totally, the Quakers. Yeah, the Quakers yeah. were the first Are to the have a... Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Okay, great. They were the yeah. first to have a protest against slavery. Yeah. They, so when I think of Anabaptists, I think of them being peacemakers and like upholding humanity of all people first. So it's interesting mm-hmm. that you're saying they could have done more. Um, yeah. Cause I, I think that growing up, I saw my church community was a great place of welcome and community. Um, but also like the, the issue with that really intimate sense of community is that there's a lot of people on the outside Mm-hmm. Um, and so with the Amish community, I have so much, re- I have a lot of respect for that devotion, but it's also, there are so many people that fall outside of the cone of their care mm-hmm. and it's hard to justify creating your own adult community and then seeing the injustices in the world. Yeah. Uh, for people who are interested in social reform or people who, um, participate in any kind of 
religious life. That tension goes back to the beginning of the faith, basically. Mm-hmm. There's always a tension between the people that want to kind of leave the world and just focus on God or create their own perfect world or alternative world. And there are the people that stay within uh, the broken world and try to save it. I think by at the end of this conversation, we're probably not going to end up on one side or the other because that's not really how these things work. No. Absolutely. We always exist in the tension between the two. Uh, but at least for me, I probably lean more toward the idea, the, the reform side. I'm probably kind of like you, Bryant, skeptical of attempts to leave the world behind and create an alternate world. I guess part of that might be because I'm a, I'm a lawyer, so I love the rules. <laughs> and I love to see how you can make the, change the rules or, or work within the rules to make something good happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, like I acknowledge in myself like the dangers of that, of being too stuck in the world you know to see alternatives that can exist. That, which is why I admire people that exist really in the activist world or do a lot of crazy cool things mm-hmm. like you, Bethany. I mean, do you see yourself leaning toward one side or the other? As more reformer or revolutionary? Yeah. I think that I identify as a reformer as well. Hmm. Um, but I think that reformation in the present um, leads to revolution in the future, right? Like, I think the small ways that we reform things now mm-hmm. end up being revolutions 50 or 60 years from now. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's look at the bail fund, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't you explain what it is? Sure. So in 2017, um, the Philadelphia Community Bail Fund, in collaboration with the National um, Bailout Organization, um, started a Mama's Day bailout. Um, so the Philadelphia Community Bail Fund came into existence in 2017 based upon that one campaign of um, having a Mama's Day bailout. And I think the goal was to raise like $25,000 in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And we ended up raising $65,000 yeah. in like three days. Yeah, um, wow. So with that extra money, we decided to become a consistent bail fund, a coalition mm-hmm. of different organizations in Philadelphia, including Black Lives Matter Philly, No215 Jails, Decarcerate PA, and other organizations decided that this needed to be a consistent thing, and we've existed since then. Yeah. I'm, I'm, what you're basically doing is paying people's bail. Right. Yeah. So if somebody gets locked up, um, either they contact, they contact us directly from prison Um, But more often, a family member contacts us via email or our um, Google Voice account. Mm -hmm. And um, if your bail is $5,000 or under, most likely we will pay that person's bail. Yeah. And I think that's why that feels like reformation to me, right? It's a really radical Mm -hmm. reform for people that don't even know you to believe that you have a right to fight your case from outside of prison and Mm -hmm. to give you the chance that many rich people have. Um, I feel like that is a reform because it also functions within the system of paying cash bail. Mm -hmm. Like our whole point is that cash bail shouldn't exist and in the meantime, we're paying into this system that we don't believe ex- should exist right. in the hopes that it'll be totally revolutionized and thrown out yeah. in the next few years. Sure. 
one of the things that I thought was interesting about that is that you all, you guys also have these community dinners. Yeah. Where that you where everybody, including the people that have been bailed out, eats has a meal together. Yeah. As a way to model a kind of community, right? Absolutely. I I grew up on Sunday dinners, mm-hmm. so I just firmly believe that people really grow closer bonds with one another mm-hmm. over a meal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of think that Jesus felt the same way. That's probably why he had the last su- supper. Yeah, t- Jesus is all about meals and yeah, parties. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, but the Philadelphia mm-hmm. Community Bell Fund isn't necessarily a religious organization. Mm-hmm. I'm just a religious Christian person. Um, so that's why it's important to me. But yeah, we have quarterly community dinners that bring together all of us as organizers mm-hmm. and people that have been bailed out along with their families to break bread over a meal together to talk about our experiences with one another and to collaborate and organize yeah. with one another. So people who have been um, downtrodden by society and just relegated to prisons have an opportunity to connect with other people who were given the same kind of sentence. You're poor. You can't pay your bail. You belong in prison. Mm -hmm. Um, They have the opportunity to meet them and grow community with them and to organize against the system with them at these community dinners. Yeah. So in this one organization, we see both impulses. We see the reform impulse and we do see in, in terms of working within the cash bail system to bail people out. But we also see the revolutionary impulse, the idea of creating this alternate community, modeling this alternate community that exists where people have relationships instead of being locked up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, – I speaking to the what, our conversation about Anabaptism again, there is a strong contingent of people in our faith community uh, that are all about the idea of, of revolution – Mm-hmm. and separation from the present state of the world and non-participation in the political system. Mm-hmm. I share your skepticism, Bryant, about uh, separating yourself from the world probably because um, the people that have been locked up and need bail mm-hmm. can't separate themselves from the system of the world. No. That's not a choice for people of color. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When we try to separate ourselves, white people kill us like every time. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not even going to give examples. Just trust me. Yeah, uh, it, uh, yeah. it um, it it has happened again and again in American history. Uh, the point being, for people of color, uh, it is more difficult to separate ourselves from the world in the way that, for instance, the Amish can. Right. Yeah, exactly. White Amish people can. Right. Having said that, I do want to bring it back to what you were saying, Bethany, about Jesus. The, uh, the question for us as people who are Jesus followers and people who have some engagement with the system is um, in following Jesus, how does he guide our approach, I guess is what I'm saying. Our approach, whether we lean towards reform or revolution. Yeah, or how to do both of those things. Mm, What a big question. Yeah. I think Jesus's approach varied Mm -hmm. um, because there were times when like he went to the temple and was flipping tables. Mm Mm-hmm. And then there were times when his response to a woman that was accused of adultery, which, side note, why wasn't the man accused too? Sure. Okay. And his response was, well, whoever is the first with sin cast the first stone, Mm -hmm. which feels a little more reformish to me because he still acknowledged that the woman was sinning 
and that there could be a punishment for that. Mm-hmm. But the punishment would only be able to be enacted by somebody that wasn't also a sinner. So it was like a new, it was like a a reformation of viewing the way we view sinners. I think I understand what you're saying because Jesus was kind of playing within the, so the, the I mean, the Pharisees come to Jesus with basically a tricky legal question. Right. Mm-hmm. And Jesus uses his own kind of tricky legal knowledge to wriggle out of that. Right. Instead of completely opposing the law or saying like, none of that matters. I'm the law. Right. Which he kind of says in other places in the Bible. Right. Uh, You know, in the New Testament, he kind of takes that like, uh, before Abraham was, I am, that kind of stance. But he doesn't do that in that instance. Instead, he's like, well, you have this legal thing. How about this thing? I I appreciate that as a lawyer. Yeah. (laughs) I think we see both approaches throughout the Bible. Mm-hmm. I'm even thinking kind of of Esther, which is like one of my favorite stories mm. in the Bible. Mm-hmm. That's a great example. Yeah. Because Esther, the story of Esther is that she's a beautiful Jew- Jewish woman mm-hmm. who uh, becomes, who gets married to the emperor of Persia. Yeah. Is that right? Uh, yeah. the Persian. Xerxes? Yeah. She's a secretly Jewish Mm, mm-hmm. That's important too. I'm so glad that you brought Esther up because it's the perfect example for what we're doing here. I don't even know how to say that. A- I spelled her name Asusara? wrong. A <laughs> I know how to say his name. I've definitely Azurus? said his name. Oh, it's Xerxes. It, I'm pretty sure it's, it's just a weird you way can of. You just say Xerxes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So in the book of Esther, the Persian king sees a marries a beautiful woman there's other stuff that happens but i'm doing the quick summary marries a beautiful woman and who turns out to be jewish and her cousin uh mordecai yeah her cousin mordecai is like you got to use your new position to help out your people Mm -hmm. Uh, but she's secretly jewish the king doesn't even know that she's uh, a jew Mm -hmm. um and her opposition at the court is one of the advisors of the king uh the villain uh haman yeah um who's trying to oppress the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And eventually Esther comes out as a Jew and is able to use her position to protect her people. Now, in that story, uh, and I mean at the end of the story, there's kind of a... It's a bloodbath. It is a bloodbath. Yeah. Uh, They take their... The Jewish people take up swords and get to take whatever they can conquer. Yeah. Yeah, as most Old Testament stories are. Sure. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, coming from from the perspective... Of an oppressed people, you can see why that story would be satisfying mm-hmm. <laughs> in a way that maybe if you're if, if you've been identifying with the oppressor your whole life, maybe you feel squeamish about that story. If you know what I mean. We looked at the only white guy in the room yeah, after yeah. we said that, <laughs> and I was just like, uh huh. <laughs> um, but that's a great example because Esther um, is trapped in this system, yeah, as a woman, mm-hmm. as you know, a uh, Jewish person, a Jewish person, as an, as a member of an oppressed uh, people. And she has to manipulate her position to help her people within the system she's trapped in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. She totally plays into the system that despite really any effort she could put forth would still exist. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how I function. Like Mm -hmm. the reality is that racism will exist. It is a huge part of, (laughs) of America's identity. Mass incarceration will exist. Mm -hmm. It is a huge part of America's identity. I think in all of the organizing that I do, my thought is how can I exist in this system in a way that will lead to revolution? Mm -hmm. I love Esther for that reason because I think she probably thought the same thing. 
how can I exist in this kingdom Mm -hmm. in a way that will revolutionize um, the lives of my people? Yeah. I mean, there is one final thing I want to touch upon this topic because you you do keep bringing it up. The idea of setting the ground for revolution Mm -hmm. or anticipating revolution. The theological language is... The eschaton? The eschaton. We're looking towards the completion of something. Yeah. I love that. I think I see, I like the, I was thinking about this today. The concept of the eschaton is so powerful. Mm-hmm. The eschaton is this idea of, it is the completion of all things. It's the end of time as we know it. It's um, in Christian understanding. It's when Jesus comes back. Oh, know? the rapture. Not the rapture. <laughs> oh. It's when Christ comes back and makes all things whole. Okay. The rapture is like a thing that was real big in the 90s. And I get yes. where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Shout out to, what was that movie with? Uh, Can- yes. With, uh, with Nightmares. Yes. Oh, Nightmares yeah. of every evangelical preteen. Yeah, I was obsessed with those books. Oh, yeah, gosh. I'm still so obsessed scary. with like, That's how you know we're millennials. Yeah. Like, I remember like, my, going back to that. My parents left one time to go to the grocery store. And I fucking lost my mind because I thought they got fucking oh, raptured. Oh, yeah, Are we going to tell stories about times we thought people were raptured? Because <laughs> that was like every day when I came home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no one's around. I wonder if the rapture happened. Oh, no, I found a shirt on the ground. Did the rapture happen? <laughs> yes, clothes. Oh, clothes being left behind. I was so Damn. afraid of the rapture. Yeah, I was too. I was obsessed with it. I, I love. I like read the books. I was always the first person like on the waiting list when the new Left Behind book came out. <laughs> you're, right. you're a masochist. Uh, okay. Sorry. Go I was, anyway, I was ten. I, so the eschaton is this idea <laughs> of when, when Christ returns or or of creation made whole. Um, mm. Depending on who you talk to, it's this. It's the end of all things. Like we kind of see it portrayed in the Revelation of John, where we we see this new society and we see a new heaven and a new earth, which is just kind of like. Um, now people, some people say it's like everything has been restored and everything mm-hmm. has been made complete. Um, and I think it's beautiful because I think you see both of these things we've been talking about in tension mm. where I think it comes up from the ground. It's, uh, it's like grassroots. If you want to say that it's revolutionary in that you have this thing coming in, you have Christ coming in, um, and, or, and you have society being completely reformed, mm-hmm. but you also, it's not just revolutionary, it's reformational because I don't think we, this is my big beef. One of my big beefs with like left behind and this stuff that I think a lot of us grew up with is that we have this idea that the earth and everything and all this matter around us is just going to get burned away. Mm -hmm. And that's not what the Bible is telling us. The Bible is pretty clear that all of this is going to be here and it's going to be made complete. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Which is on my best days. That's what I'm working for. Yeah. Like that's, that's on my days when my faith is strong. That is what, I keep in mind is this we have a revolution and a reformation both coming together. Yeah. Totally. That's so cool. All right. Are we okay leaving it there? I also think we need a plug turn up. Mm-hmm. It's our own little eschaton this November. I really like the idea of the reformation and the revolution coexisting. <clears throat> and I kind of think we do that with turn up to bailout. Mm-hmm. So every November, Circle Mobilizing Because Black Lives Matter hosts a festival that is really a call for black joy Mm -hmm. um, in systems that rob us of all joy Mm. um, by enlisting the talent of local black musical artists. Um, So this year we have Solomon Thorne performing, 
Sonovia Garrett, um, Sharif Lacey, also known as Reef the Lost Cause, um, Bethlehem Roberson, who is such an amazing performer, um, David Live, and Brandon Molden. They are all local Philadelphia um, musical acts that will be performing throughout the night along with um, black businesses vending mm-hmm. and yeah. selling their amazing goods. We're expecting Sadiddy Hippie. Um, they're out of Wilmington, Delaware, actually, and they'll be selling candles and um, handmade, homemade, like deodorants and other items like that, as well as um, Elegant Crochet. Uh, she is a woman that makes beautiful knitwear and sells those items. So I say all that to say that Turn Up to Bail Out is a night celebrating the brilliance and craftiness of Black people geared towards raising money for the freedom of other black people. Mm -hmm. So with that, you know, we are acting within the system of cash bail, but it's revolutionary for the most oppressed to be freeing. Sure. And drawing in the idea of, I mean, we're also modeling a revolutionary new community Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the same way that we're looking toward this idea of an eschatological time when that community is the community. Mm, yeah. You know, when the celebration of the people who are oppressed uh, fills the world mm-hmm. because the whole order of things has been upended by God. Yeah. So November 9th, get your tickets. Yes. Turnuptobailout.com. It's going to be great. Yeah. All right. So um, the last thing we like to do is talk about stuff that we're into. Um why don't I start off by telling you guys what Chris is into? Because he is sick, but his voice speaks to us. From Google Documents. <laughs> yes. Um, so Chris wanted us to, to know about uh, a book called Unsettled Truths by Mark Charles, a Navajo man and a Christian pastor, and also apparently an independent candidate in the 2020 presidential election. Um, he, Chris tells us that the book is a primer for evangelicals about how 15th century church-led heresy sanctioned genocide and slavery – and laid the foundations for the myth that the United States is a sovereign nation. So heavy stuff, Chris. Thanks for that. Uh, but it sounds awesome, and we can't wait to hear you talk about it on the podcast. Uh, Bethany, what are you into? Yeah, so this week I'm really into a book um, called The Body is Not an Apology uh, by Sonia Renee Taylor. Um, it is a book about the revolution of radical self-love um, and body acceptance and body positivity. And I also listened to a podcast um, called The Nod, and they had an episode um, entitled Fearing the Black Body that really talks about how um, black women, black people, um, but this, the focus was um, black women's bodies are oftentimes um, viewed as less attractive because mm-hmm. of white supremacy. Um, And as a black woman that has struggled with an eating disorder since I think I was 12, I would say, um, and being on a new weight loss journey, I've lost about 30 pounds since July. I'm really taking seriously my mental health in trying Mm -hmm. to lose weight. And these books have been really helpful with that. So right on. Yeah. So I had to read this book for seminary. It's called Joy Unspeakable. It's by a woman, Barbara Holmes. If you're into theology stuff, it's a really great book. She's talking about um, looking at the experience of the black church 
um, through the lens as a contemplative community. It's really interesting you're talking about getting into your body because she, a lot of what she's done in the book that I've read so far, she has been examining the way or like kind of contrasting it with like in the West, a lot of our contemplative action tends to be very uh, head driven. And Mm -hmm. it's all about like Mm. uh, calming the anxiety in your head, which isn't bad, but she talks about in in her experiences in the the black church about how uh, people feel uh, things. Yeah, exactly. Feel things and live things out in their bodies Mm -hmm. in a way that is really powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's been challenging me. Um, Also, Brittany Howard, she's the lead singer of the Alabama shakes. She just came out of the album like three weeks ago. That's so very good. She's like one of the best playing out there right now. Nice. What's the album called? I don't remember. It's called Jamie. Nice. Brittany Howard's new album, Jamie, is amazing. Nice. I'm into POC-owned businesses in my neighborhood. I am proud to patronize Amalgam Comics, owned by Ariel Johnson. And also, um, as I was coming down here, I got my coffee from Flow State Coffee Bar, um, owned by a uh, queer Asian woman. So. Nice. And not only that, but, like, I go into these places and I see the owners just hanging out, like, doing their business or just hanging out in their businesses. And I'm like, I'm supporting you by buying this thing. Yeah. And I enjoy that. So that feels great. Yeah. yeah. That's great. All right. Special thanks to Joe Mahoney, our technical director, especially today. Thank you so we much, had Joe. so much tech trouble. Yeah. yeah. We had to call him back, like, three times. Um, we appreciate you. And also to Luke Bartolomeo, our communications manager. Our theme song is by Jared Selby. And I just wanted to take a second to talk about all the people across the country that are listening to our podcast. Mm -hmm. We want to hear from y'all. There's somebody in Mountain View, California that's listening to us. I don't know where that is, but I want to hear from you. Mm -hmm. And Little Rock, Arkansas and Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. In St. Paul, Minnesota, talk to us. Contact us at circlemobilizing at gmail.com. Let us know who you are. Let us know what you think about the podcast. And let us know how God is moving you um, in regards to being anti-racist or how you're experiencing Jesus as a person of color. We totally want your input. So stay black, Little Mermaid. All right. Happening right now. Screw the screw into the cork and then pull it out with the. That's a great idea. That's genius. This screw is pretty stripped, but I'll try and find a better one. And then how do you pull it out? And then it'll be screwed into the cork, so we can just pull it out. I guess is the philosophy. Yeah, that's kind of the idea. I mean, it's a it's a corkscrew, right? Oh, now you got it. There we go. This is amazing. I've definitely done this before. (laughs) Really? This is great. I hope you don't mind if I drill through the cork. A lot of uh, housewarming parties. This is what happens. And now you got to get a hammer action. Really? What do you do now? Oh. Oh my gosh. This is why we wanted you here today. (laughs) Oh, this is hard. It's always. Maybe if I grab the bottle. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to pour all out. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I'm afraid of. No. Do you need a, a harder service in your hand? Oh, it's actually coming. Okay, great. I oh, I think you gotta wiggle it, maybe.
this. Like the way you're going back and forth, and then yeah, here you are lifting it a bit. This is quality content. We should be recording this for sure. Oh, well, I am. <laughs> you <laughs> underestimate me. <laughs> That'll be the end of next week's episode, oh, no. us trying to get this wine.